Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? For who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And then turning to Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quietened myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord 
both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Neil. Let's pray together. Father, you are wonderfully a great, very great God. And we confess that easily. We grasp it so slowly. We, we don't see it clearly. Please help us this evening to see more of your greatness and also to see ourselves as we should, that we might learn to trust you, put our hope in you. Please speak to us. For Jesus' sake, amen. If we were traveling at the speed of light, you probably know this, in one second, we could whiz round the earth a little over seven times. In two seconds, we would pass the moon. In four and a half years, we would reach the nearest star to our own. It would take us 100,000 years to cross from one end of our galaxy to the other, two million years to reach the next nearest galaxy, 20 million years to reach the next little cluster of galaxies. And then we'd be just beginning to explore the mind-boggling vastness of our universe with a hundred trillion galaxies, whatever that number means. It's, it's incomprehensible. And yet amazingly, wonderfully, do you remember those words in Isaiah 40 that were read? Isaiah says, with the breadth of his hand, God marks off the heavens. That's how great he is. In the, the hollow of his hand, he could hold all the waters, the nations, those billions of Chinese and Indians and all those in the Americas and everywhere else, all the billions of people. They're like dust on his scales. And the great ones, the rulers of our world, well, Isaiah says, God just goes, blows on them, and they're gone. There is nothing to him. It's wonderful imagery Isaiah gives us. He wants us to help us grasp the greatness of our God. Infinite in his wisdom, infinite in his power, sovereign over everything in this world. Infinite too in his care. He knows each and every star of those many, many trillions, if there are trillions of galaxies. He governs the course of each one, Isaiah says. If that's true of stars, much, much more is it true of you and me. In fact, if he governs every star, we might reflect, well, sure enough, he surely governs every single cell in my body. Thinking this evening about the second of four Gs, that's what this little series is throughout August, four great truths about God. He's good, so last time, he's great, he's gracious, and he's glorious. And they're taken from a book, a very good book by a guy called Tim Chester called You Can Change. And as uh, Tim Chester unpacks those four truths, he does so particularly wanting to show how they counter common lies that we're prone to believe. So under this one, God is great. He says, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. 
something many of us are prone to think. Behind each of the lies, actually, there's an idol. And behind this one is a, an idol that lurks in all our hearts, essentially. It's, it's me. It's myself. We think we can be God. We can be in control of what's going on in our lives. We can be our own savior when things are going wrong. And Isaiah says, who are you kidding? Turn from those pathetic idols. Turn to the true God, the great God. Isaiah says, with whom will you compare God? To what image will you compare him? He's saying if we, if we saw God for who he really is, we'd see that our idols are nothings. Stupid places to pin our hopes. Now, we could very happily and, and usefully spend our time in Isaiah 40, a great, great chapter and worth um, pondering to see afresh God's greatness. But we're actually going to focus on Psalm 131, our second reading, which in a sense presses home the implication of that truth, helps us see how it, it challenges and comforts our hearts. Some of you will remember the kids' song, Our God is a Great Big God. We sang it this morning, sang it this afternoon, actually, at, at City 2. And we kind of easily sort of acknowledge, yes, God is a great God. But we don't so readily stop and think what that means for us. And that's what this psalm, I think, helps us to do. It's a beautiful psalm. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, a great 19th century preacher, said of this psalm, it's one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. It's a truth we, we, we struggle to really deeply learn. It's teaching us about right heart attitudes, teaching us to have a humble heart and a hopeful heart. That's what we're going to think about. We're going to spend most of our time really on the first, a humble heart. First two verses. Let's look at them. Right at the, the, the center of the psalm is this beautiful picture of a child with its mother. Look at verse 2. David says, but I have calmed and quietened myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. It's a lovely thing to hold a baby in your arms. It doesn't have to be your own baby. It's, just a, it's always a wonderful thing to hold a little baby in your arms. But I do remember in the middle of the night, when that little baby won't settle, when they don't stop crying, it's not lovely always. Babies then you have one way to make their needs known, and that is to cry. And yet they can't explain what the particular need is. And as parents, sometimes you are frustratedly sort of baffled. How on earth do I quieten this little thing uh, as they cry and cry and cry? But this, the verse is talking about a, a weaned child. And in those days, children were weaned at about three or four years old, much later than we might wean kids and put them on solids today. So as, we, as he talks about this weaned child, think of, I don't know, little four-year-old, maybe. Someone going, about to go into reception, perhaps. Little kids have their moments, too. They toddler tantrums and all that. It's not that 
Toddlers just are wonderfully never cry at all. But in the picture David's painting, the picture we're to have is of a young child, perhaps sitting on its mother's knee, content, peaceful. A child who's learnt to trust his mother's care. The child isn't thinking, gosh, I haven't done anything about lunch. I wonder what's in the fridge. And this top's going to need changing, and I haven't got to put the washing in. Toddlers don't think like that. Mum's got things sorted, is what the toddler thinks. If it's with its mum, all is well. David says, I've calmed and quietened myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. I wonder how calm and quiet you are inside. We, we, we like to sort of present as though we are. We want to be chill and, and sort of seem sorted and everything else. But deep down, I wonder how much noise there really is. Maybe you try and ignore the noise much of the time. But for most of us, I guess there's fears and anxieties and insecurities and longings and stresses. And they're all clamoring for our attention. David says, I've calmed and, and, and quietened myself. You might say, how does he do that? How can I switch off all this noise that's in here? Did David just have a sort of chill personality, a sort of zen-like ability to sort of detach from all the stresses, which as king he must have had plenty of? Did he just distract himself with a box set or reach for a bottle of wine? How did he quieten himself? Well, David says the key is having a right view of himself and a right view of God. It's not that he simply renounced anxiety and stress. I'll, I'll have none of it. Now he says, what I renounced was pride. The key to a restful, contented, quiet heart is having a humble heart, he says. The key to verse 2 is verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. He says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And normally, if we heard someone say that, we'd think they definitely are proud, wouldn't we? It sort of sounds a rather conceited thing to say. But David's not sort of bragging to other people. David is speaking to the God who he knew had searched him and knew him completely. This isn't an idle, empty boast. I take it to understand. It's true. In fact, the only reason he's able to say verse 2 is because he can say verse 1. My heart is not proud, Lord. Well, I guess a number of us would have read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He's got a chapter in there called The Great Sin. And he says, he's saying pride is the great sin. It's a vice that is... Each one of us, in each one of us, in our hearts, is a vice we very quickly spot in other people. And we hate it. We don't like it when people seem rather arrogant or, or full of themselves. 
And yet it's a vice, he says, that we are very, very slow to ever really recognize and acknowledge in our own hearts. But naturally, we're all proud. Naturally, all of us are full of ourselves. It's the attitude that the prophet Ezekiel points out in one of the rulers of his day. And he says this, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. But you are a mere mortal and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. That's the essence of a a proud heart. We don't articulate it quite so brazenly and bluntly. A proud heart is one who forgets who we are, mere mortals. And we think in practice as though we are God. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Proud hearts lead to haughty eyes. If we're full of ourselves, well, so quickly we look down on other people. Although sometimes our pride is revealed, actually, as wounded pride. Maybe we think we don't look down on others but the discontent we battle with within is because we rather wish we could look down on others and we rather resent and envy their successes, their good looks, their sortedness, whatever it might be. David says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Those words, great and wonderful, in the book of Psalms, are words that are particularly associated with God. So David's talking about a humility that recognizes the sense that he's not God. There are things that he cannot understand. They're too great for him. Things that he can't control. Many things that are just way above his his pay grade. See, a humble heart is a heart that doesn't overreach itself. doesn't think that we can be God. recognizes our limitations. There are things we can't do, things we can't know. There are many unanswered questions we're going to have to live with in this life. Things we will not understand. It's the humble heart. It's the humility that recognizes, many of the verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the Lord. Moses is saying there's, there's lots of things that are secret things. We, we haven't been told them. There's going to be many questions we, we, we won't know the answers to. Only God knows those things. And the humble heart doesn't concern ourselves with things too wonderful for us. That is, it's not just having a, a small view of ourselves, being more very sort of self-effacing or what have you. It, it's having a small view of ourselves tied with having a big view of God. Actually seeing ourselves right because we've seen God right. We've recognized him as the great God. We're the toddler. He is the mother, if you like. Much, much greater than we are. You may know the story of Louis XIV of France. He crowned king, an absolute monarch, 
as it was in those days, at the age of five, and he reigned for 55 years, lived in the palace of Versailles, every whim uh, attended to. He was known as the Sun King. That's often how we remember him. But his preferred title, apparently, was Louis the Great. That's what he liked to be called. When he died, his funeral was held in, in Notre Dame, and that magnificent cathedral, if you've ever been there, was lit with just one single candle that was placed next to this ornate coffin of Louis. The preacher was a chap called uh, Massillon. He was the, given the task of delivering the, the eulogy, and everyone would have expected some marvelous words about what they thought was the greatest man that there was of that age. But as Massillon walked up to the pulpit, he paused by the coffin and snuffed out the candle. Then he climbed the stairs and began his sermon like this. Only God is great. Only God is great. And that word only is quite important. It's easy for us to sing, our oh, God is a great big God, whatever it might be, and we, we, we can acknowledge that, but we often don't fully grasp only God is great. But that's the mark of a humble heart. Yes, a big view of God, but a small view of ourselves. He's a great God. But actually in Isaiah and in this psalm, he's not austere in his greatness. Actually, David says in the psalm, our, our heavenly father is like a mother with its child. I'm constantly amazed at a mother's love. I'm a father. I, I love my kids very, very much. But there is something wonderful to me about a mother's love. The way I see Jules just carries constantly a concern for the kids. I think the Bible would say to us, in a mother's love, we get a glimpse of one aspect of what our heavenly father's love is like. There's something motherly, if you like, about it. Elsewhere in Isaiah, God says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's the kind of great God we have. Yes, great in power, great in wisdom, great too in love. And our response to him should be humble trust. The picture I'd love you to take away into this week is that picture of the, the little child with its mother. That's how we're to see ourselves with God. Okay, Not concerning ourselves with things too great for me. So many of our, our worries, the noise within, is because we think we must somehow sort everything. We must be in control. But when the toddler hears on the radio something or news about interest rates going up, he doesn't turn to his mother and say, are you going to be able to pay the mortgage this month? Don't expect a toddler to worry about things like that. Don't expect a toddler to understand things like that. Sometimes we 
our, our noise within is because we, we, we forget we're not God. Let's think of ourselves as a, like that toddler with, it, with, it, with its mother. This psalm, you see, it's a, it says it's a psalm of David. And as such, I take it, it points forward to, it's fulfilled most perfectly in great David's greater son. David's song, most perfectly, is Jesus's song. It's good just to reflect how he was the one who did have the perfectly humble heart. Actually, the, that's the one thing he told us about his heart. Matthew 11, he said, learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. And though Jesus faced pressures and stresses and troubles and difficulties way beyond anything we will have to face in our lives, amidst all that, he knew peace within, that quietness within, as he trusted his heavenly Father. And he says to us in Matthew 11, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. As we learn to have humble hearts like his, we'll know that same peace, like that child. We'll rest in this truth that our God is a great God. That's the first thing. More quickly, humble hearts, and then secondly, hopeful hearts. In the, in the final verse, David presses this truth home. He's spoken of his own experience. Now he's appealing to us and how we're to respond. Verse 3, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And actually, that's a repeat from a verse in the previous psalm. If you just look up, verse 7 of, of Psalm 130, again, same words. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. And I think that repetition is a little marker that, in a sense, we're to tie these psalms together. And the previous psalm makes it very clear that an important aspect of putting our hope in the Lord, hoping in him, is waiting. Look back to 130 verse 5, other side of the page. It says this, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Morning, of course, will come. Our, our hope is a confident hope. But part of hoping is waiting. One of the differences, I think, between a baby and a weaned child is that the baby doesn't know how to wait. The baby wants its needs met now. If it's hungry or its nap is full or it's got some wind, whatever it might be, it, it cries until that need is met now. It lives in the present. But the child, the older, has learned to trust the mother says, no, lunch is not till 15 minutes' time. You've got to wait. Well, it will wait sometimes. And let the mother read another story, whatever it might be. It's one of the hardest lessons in the Christian life, actually, to learn to wait. Like, we're often like infants. And we want things now. And the, the, the 
turbulence in our hearts so often is stirred up because we don't like having to wait for an answer to our prayers, for God to make the next thing clear in our lives, what the the future might be. And waiting is one of the ways we learn the humility of verse 1. Waiting is one of the ways we learn the trust of verse 2, like that child with its mother. The hopeful heart is one that has learnt to wait, that trusts God's wisdom, trusts God's power, trusts his love, that knows he's a great God and he's our heavenly father. So verse 3, Israel, people of God, Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And that's delightfully comprehensive. Now, today, those things that maybe are on your hearts, you're fretting about, worried about, stressing about. Put your hope in the Lord. Now and forevermore. All the things you worry about in the future, whatever might be. Put your hope in the Lord. Let me just end by reading again um, those final verses from Isaiah 40, because it is a lovely section. And hope, actually, is where Isaiah 40 ends as well. So if you want, you can flick across to page 726. And I'll just read this and then we'll pray. Page 726. I'll read from verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Let me pray. Father God, please help us to put our hope in you. Please teach us to trust you. We we have too small a view of you. We, We haven't grasped your greatness. We have too big a view of ourselves. We're too quick to think we should be in control and we pin our hopes in ourselves. Please Teach us this childlike trust in your goodness, in your kindness, in your power. And help us learn what it is to wait. Uh, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.